the Christmas Master Plan is underway. Join me, Rachel, and our guest Kathleen Showalter as we begin a trek through all the Christmas specials through Peter Capaldi's last episode. Say hello to the 10th Doctor for the first time, sort of, and Donna Noble, also sort of, on the October 10th edition of This Week in Time Travel. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel. I'm Chip. And I'm Rachel. Rachel's back. Hey there. Hello. Alyssa is on assignment. Something having to do with a friend's wedding and lots and lots of wedding drinks and such. So uh, Rachel has been able to join us for a quick look at the news of the week. And then we will be joined by Kathleen Showalter as we begin talking about the Christmas specials. All the Christmas specials. Exciting. Well, frequently in the news section, we're talking about the news of the last week, but we are talking about this week's news on This Week in Time Travel, at least to start off with. The Mirror is reporting that there are some format changes coming to our favorite show. Jodie Whittaker's first series is going to be only 10 episodes long. We've been perhaps spoiled by British television standards. We've had 13 episode series for the longest time. And it dropped back to 12 there for a while. And now we're going to have 10, if the Mirror's report is true, 10 episodes, each of them a full hour. I can't say that I'm thrilled about this. I want more episodes, and I'm okay if they're a little shorter. What about you, Rachel? I think I'm more concerned about the quality and getting more diversity in the writer's room and directing slate. And that as long as that's there... I think 10 episodes is fine. If it dropped down to five or six, I would be upset about it. But 10 versus 12 and they're a little bit longer. I think that's okay. But I'm I'm used to American style, all you can eat buffet television. I'm used to 22 episodes of horrible sitcoms and 24 episodes of Next Generation seasons and things like that. Uh, uh, And how many clunkers do you get in that? Well, at... It's the more I know. I want the quality. I want quality and quantity. I want it all, Rachel. I want it all. Well, that's fair. You're allowed to. I'm also curious about how BBC America is going to handle this because BBC commercial breaks. Lots of commercial breaks. Uh, I'm just saying, if the episodes themselves are an hour long and they air in the UK without commercial breaks. How are they going to fit it into their schedules on BBC America with the commercial? I have to assume that BBC America will go for an hour and 30 minutes or probably, yeah, which which is going to be interesting. The BBC America Doctor Who movie of the week. I don't know. Start that ABC Sunday night movie fanfare in the background. I admit I was kind of grumpy about the drop off from 13 episodes to 12 episodes. So I guess I'm just impossible to satisfy here but as you say as long as the writing room has enough diversity and the stories are solid it'll be fine it'll be just fine uh yep big surprise the mirror is also predicting that we'll get a new tardis set and a new tardis prop and a new sonic screwdriver etc and so on that's how that's to be expected that's how it goes when you have a new showrunner 
There's a classic series episode that was almost made, and then there was union action, and it wasn't finished. And it was called Shada. And it's been the holy grail of Doctor Who fans and Doctor Who creators to finish Shada in some way. I believe Shada has been remade about 742 times. But the BBC has just announced that Shada is going to be released in as close to, I guess, a definitive edition as you possibly could. The missing parts of it are going to be animated, and it's going to be released as a digital download on the 24th of November and on DVD and Blu-ray on December 4th. It's a Douglas Adams story. It's been remade as a big finish. It's been remade as a novel. We've had so many Doctor Who episodes where particular episodes in the stories have been reconstructed in animation. But this is going to be the first time that I think the entire story is going to be interspersed with live action and animation all the way through. Is that going to be weird? Well, it's not going to be weird for me because I haven't seen it. I haven't heard it. I haven't read it. So I'm excited because it'll be new to me. And if it's the air quotes definitive edition, then I don't I can just watch this and I won't need to watch any of the other versions of it. That Gareth Roberts novel on your shelf, it, 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 it's fine. It's fine right over there. Yeah, I do have it sitting on my shelf, <laughs> but I will admit to having not read it, it, it yet. I may have exaggerated on the number of times. There was the video where basically all of the location filming was completed and then the strike happened. So if it was going to be shot on the studio, it didn't happen. So... The story was released to video with linking uh, narration by Tom Baker. Big Finish remade it with Paul McGann, of all things. And, wow. And, um, and I admit, I have actually seen bits of the uh, Ian Levine sort of fan-produced, but not really attempt to reconstruct it where he got most of the original actors except for Tom Baker together. But Tom Baker and Lila Ward will be there and we will have a link in the show notes to the teaser trailer, which includes live action and animation. And we'll just have to see how well they go together. Cool. Now, my understanding my good, dear New Yorker friend, is that there was a really, really big comic convention going on in your neck of the woods that you figured you'd bypass this time around. Yes. Uh, New York Comic Con was this past weekend. Um, I did decide to bypass it this year just because of a lot of other stuff going on in my world. But I didn't feel too badly about it because uh, the big event, at least for us Whovians, uh, was on Thursday and Friday when Peter Capaldi and Pearl Mackey were there. And those are work days, so I probably wouldn't have been able to go. So I, mm. I feel good about not having to like feel guilty about missing it. There was loads and loads of stuff uh, tweeted and tumbled about Peter Capaldi's visit, but I confess that I haven't seen a whole lot of news from Pearl Mackey's visit. Uh, oh, yeah. Did you catch any? There were so many really great Instagram photos of her uh, photo appearance with people I know, people I don't know. Really great Bill cosplay in photos with her, and it it was just amazing to see some of that. So 
Yeah, it was great. And from all reports, the Peter Capaldi panel was outstanding as usual, as he is always a delight. Uh, My favorite question that I heard about was about his hair, where he had indicated that he didn't initially want to cut his hair short for the first season that he was on. But so he just kind of let it grow and grow over time. And then it got out of control in the best way possible. (laughs) I wonder if he said anything about uh, the the hair continuity error and flat line. That, oh, I that don't episode know that is, specifically. That episode is so funny because he pretty much had the military buzz cut. It was at Eccleston links or lack thereof when he's on the TARDIS set. And then you know, when he finally steps out of the TARDIS, he's uh, looking just a little bit longer hair. Uh, yeah, we heard a lot about the hair agenda. We heard that he isn't super keen at this point um, in his career. Now that he's just wrapped being Doctor Who, he's not super keen on coming back for a multi-doctor kind of thing or anything like that. And of course, highly enthusiastic about one Jodie Whittaker. Uh, The future most definitely is female, don't you think? I certainly do. We also found out that Fathom Events is going to be doing it yet another time. This year's Christmas special, Twice Upon a Time, Capaldi's Swan Song, is going to be in U.S. theaters on December 27th, I believe one day only, and I assume that means that it's going to show up in the U.K. and Canadian theaters as well. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the episodes in theaters since the 50th, so I'm actually thinking about doing it this time around again. It's kind of amazing, and I would love to see Rachel Talalay's work on the big screen. That's just, you talk That's about, exactly what I'm thinking, yeah. that I need to see that. Rachel Talalay's work needs to be on big screens, period. I mean, um, I'm still a little grumpy that she wasn't tapped to direct Captain Marvel or anything like that. But I have every expectation that Twice Upon a Time is going to look phenomenal and Why wouldn't you want to see it on a giant screen? It'll be two days later, which means that BBC America will, of course, get their uh, advertising revenue first. But uh, I'm all about that. Um, What do you think of Danny Hargreaves? The effects guy. Yes. He's he's a handsome devil, I gotta say. He is. I saw him lead. They did an effects panel at the 50th anniversary convention in London that I attended uh, and it was marvelous. Did some practical effects on stage and just talked about the whole process about how that works. And he was a guest for Radio Free Scarrow, one of their live shows at uh, Gallifrey One, uh, one of the same shows that I did a two-minute Time Lord presentation at that one. Uh, really, really nice guy. And a really, really talented special effects artist, his company, Real SFX, has been picked up again. It's like the first major renewal, I guess, for the Chris Chibnall office, picking up folks who've been working for Doctor Who before. So there is going to be a little bit of continuity in the blowing things up and prosthetics and other practical effects department. It'll be good to see. It'll be good yeah. to see his name on the credits again. And the blowing things up is pretty key. It's essential. I mean, this is the blowingest up job on uh, the BBC, I think. And one last uh, bit of news uh, for the week. A special shout out to our friends over at Verity. Six talented women who have just taken the Doctor Who 
podcasting world by storm. And they celebrated their 150th episode last week. So big props to Deb and Erica and Lynn and Liz and Tansy and Katrina. And this episode celebration is a lie. It's an absolute lie. Because of their extras. Because of their extras. This is actually their 248th episode. When I congratulate them on their 150th episode, I'm saying the word 150th with air quotes. You can't see the air quotes because it's a podcast, but the air quotes are there. But even if it's not really 150 episodes, Verity is a groundbreaking podcast, and they have added so much to the Doctor Who universe. Uh, So really, really glad that they're still going and going strong. And I will have an orange flower in their honor. Oh, orange flowers. Those are those drinks at Mother Burger in uh, New York, aren't they? They are. And they're like mimosas and margaritas? Combined, yes. Combined. I'm pre-diabetic. I can't have these. They sound wonderful, though. They absolutely are. (sighs) Why can't I have anything nice? That's a quick look at the news of the week that was. We're going to take a quick break to let you know what's going on on the Incomparable Network. And then we're going to be joined by Kathleen Showalter, and we're going to talk about those Christmas episodes. This week on the Incomparable Network... On The Incomparable, the book club is reconvened for Stephen King's sprawling seven-book epic, The Dark Tower. Stephen and Erica are two episodes into The Highlanders on the hundredth episode of Lazy Doctor Who. And Tim and Jason recorded live from the Vancouver International Film Festival to talk about Canadian TV, Larry David, and more on the TV Talk Machine. You can find all this and more at theincomparable.com. Well, it's week one of the Christmas Master Plan. We're talking about the Christmas Invasion and the Runaway Bride. And joining us is our guest, Kathleen Showalter. Hello, Kathleen. Hey, Chip. Hey, Rachel. Hello. I got to say, right off the bat, uh, as we're counting down or counting up or whatever, all of the Christmas specials up to uh, Peter Capaldi's last one, I got a certain weird bit of whiplash watching Dayglow David Tennant stuff after so many years of Peter Capaldi and a a more heavily graded look at the world of Doctor Who, I gotta say. Rachel and Kathleen, going back to these old episodes and these specifically these Christmas episodes, does it feel like Doctor Who's a completely different show from then to now? I think it does in in a lot of ways. I love these two episodes, by the way. They're they're probably my two favorite Christmas specials. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so I go back to them all the time because I love them so much. So it, it doesn't the whiplash really isn't there for me because I'm it's just part of my, you know, rewatch cycles. But definitely from a tone and from a look. It's it's drastically different from what we get now. And especially, I think, partially maybe because of the 50th and then with the timing of doctor turnovers, we've just had so much heavy stuff happening and required to have these 
big dramatic moments and tearjerker moments in the more recent ones that it does feel different to go back to these lighter episodes. I completely agree with Rachel. Runaway Bride is one of my comfort food episodes where I will wa- I have watched that introductory sequence with Donna and the doctor and the what? What? I I can't countless times. Um I'll watch it at any given moment and I watch it intentionally for that lightness that you're talking about, that that these are part of my rewrite schedule because sometimes the tonal weight of some of the more recent Christmas specials or or the more recent seasons is is sometimes a lot. And this provides a palate cleanser in a way. It it is weird to see the the other kind of palette, like the color palette is so different. And you're talking about tone, and there is this less weighty emotional tone, but there's also a lightness in the way it's shot um, cinematographically, cinematographically. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the word I want there, but it's so much brighter. To be able to see David Tennant's freckles is astonishing. I feel like looking at these again today when I had been looking at a more recent Christmas special, I was like, oh, I'm not peering into the darkness. Uh, you know, somebody has the, the lights all the way on. I got to say, they look like they've got a huge budget to work with, too. Um, These were these were shot in standard definition back in the day. And I think the BBC was a little kinder, a little flush or more flush with cash for Doctor Who. At least it seemed that way. Uh, There are extras all over the place. Uh, They don't have to go super detailed with the computer graphics or anything like that because it was just standard def. So you've got spaceships and asteroids and giant crowd scenes of replicated Sycorax dudes and all that stuff. Um, Car chases! Car chases! A freaking TARDIS car chase! That is something that I never knew I needed, and yet there it was. And you know what? It actually looks pretty good. It looks pretty good. It does. It does. It's, I will say the only shot in all of that that I think maybe is a little dicey is the TARDIS kind of crashing near the opening of Christmas Invasion after the because it's right after the regeneration. So it's yeah. the regeneration yeah. energy that's this throwing is true. the TARDIS, of course. But other than that shot, I, I would absolutely agree that it looks great. And oh, and in uh, Christmas Invasion with all those extras going to the ledge. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of expansive. It's a time when the first season of Doctor Who was an unqualified smash success, and they greenlit a Christmas special for them, which, oh, by the way, we're going to introduce a new Doctor in this one. And then for Runaway Bride, they up themselves another notch by recruiting Catherine Tate to do this one-time-only special guest appearance on Doctor Who. It just feels like a time of just some complete, complete and utter possibility and delight. Uh, like we weren't there. There wasn't any room to be jaded about Doctor Who because Doctor Who was back and it was growing and growing and growing. One other thing before we get into the episode specifically, um, here in the U.S., we don't really have a Christmas special tradition for our television shows because our tra- TV shows tend to run like uh, 20 episodes or more. They run through the holidays, and and it is kind of weird to think about a Doctor Who Christmas special like a Star Trek Christmas special, Star Trek The Next Generation Christmas special. That just wouldn't have happened for us. Um 
I How sort d- of disagree with that. Okay. But I, I think we absolutely have a tradition of Christmas specials. They just air two to three weeks earlier True. than Christmas. And and as part of a series, as part of an ongoing series, as opposed yes. to, you know. Yes. I think also our tradition of Christmas specials, and, and not to speak to the later, particularly the Moffat Christmas specials, but in comparison to these, a lot of Christmas specials in American television tend to end with a a soppy family togetherness motto. And there's an element of that here, but and there's also... an angel also, getting its wings comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's something about these that is more comic, more fun than a lot of American Christmas specials can be. And I think that probably ties in a little bit to the British tradition of, of having comedy, of having pantomime, of having fun on Christmas Day. Yeah, and it becomes le- sort of less and less fun with, when you get to the end of time yeah. and stuff like that, you know. I, I, I mean, I, I should be, I'll be brutally honest. I love watching these again, and it it brought home how how dark in some ways the more recent ones have been when I started to really think about them and think about them in the context of talking about them because I just, I didn't have any anxiety about watching these. I just had glee. Uh, let's start with Christmas Invasion. Let's talk about Heavy. When Matt Smith and David Tennant left the role, they left on holiday episodes. New Year's, part two of a two-parter that started on Christmas uh, for Tennant and Christmas for uh, Matt Smith. These happy-go-lucky Christmas episodes that turn into, you know, the death of a doctor and then in the last few seconds you get to meet the new doctor and then that's the end of it you have to wait several months for... but christopher eccleston left at the end of the first series we got introduced to david Tennant saying hello barcelona and then we got a uh, children in need one-off special this episode was not at all about saying goodbye to a doctor the characters on that episode were saying goodbye to the doctor, but for most of for, for us in the audience, it was more about, um, hey, who is this new guy? What's he going to be like? Uh, I found that to be, as you said, Kathleen, kind of refreshing and light. I really love the fact that we have the characters struggling. Uh, I mean, we have Rose struggling to to explain yes this is the doctor even though you know i thought i knew him i mean that's pretty that is actually a bit heart-wrenching i thought i knew him and then but but i didn't but they they come together in the end and it's very sweet it's nice in a way not to to have a a a bittersweet ending in you know a, a painful ending as as eccleston leaves and he's brilliant but then to have something that kind of bumps the the ball up into the air again and and sometimes when you're you're leaving on the end of someone it lets the momentum out you're you're coming you're coming down and that leaves the you know several months where you're waiting to see what's going to happen but it's it's not necessarily always with a fizzle or spark of excitement I, I mean there's an element of that but like it's it's it is it's heavier it's not just Rose who's like uh, sort of bereft and feeling abandoned. The whole episode is about what people do when the doctor is gone. And it's all designed to make you want to see the doctor again. So, of course, David Tennant 
finally, after getting some tantalizing hints here and there, finally the TARDIS circuit, translation circuits are working. That must mean the doctor is back and the door swings open and there's David Tennant. Manipulative? In pajamas. In pajamas. In pajamas. Uh, manipulative or perfect or perfectly manipulative? Maybe a little of both, but I didn't feel manipulated yeah. per se. I think, you know, there's so much great stuff prior to that moment with the doctor there, but also with uh, Mickey and Jackie kind of helping Rose along on the journey. And you have, of course, the rude and not ginger moment mm-hmm. and the the Lion uh, King moment, the Lion yeah. King moment. And you have the Jackie babbling on and the doctor trying to get a word in edgewise moment and he can't. Mm-hmm. I need you to shut up. Moment. Oh, he's not that, and, that different then. Yeah. And so I, I feel like you got enough little moments with him and with everybody else together that you didn't feel like he wasn't there Yeah, throughout the episode. And so I, I think it was, you know, a, a great moment just to introduce this new doctor in hero mode. I think that was important to do that. And so you kind of needed a little bit of separation in order to make that effective. And, and I think it worked. Yeah. I, I very much agree that that separation that that need for the doctor that you you saw that he was there so you you weren't afraid that he wouldn't arrive like you knew that there was a new doctor that had been laid aside but then particularly with um the prime minister saying doctor if you're anywhere we need you today <laughs> we need you now and unit and you have all of these references back to i mean Little asides to the classic series, but just back to the previous Doctor. Back, they build a, a past for that character and his role in saving the Earth. That when he does come, it it's, it fulfills, it caps off beautifully the build. So it's manipulative, but I, I think it's it's not just emotionally manipulative. It's more like the perfect end to a, a build of, of structure and emotion than it is just, I'm going to rend your heartstrings. Y'all talked about how important it was for him to come in as, as a hero in this episode. I have to say that I wasn't expecting at the time, and it did seem a little odd re-watch, on, on rewatching, that he comes in swinging a broadsword. Mm-hmm. It's like Pertwee on steroids. This is a fighting hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a North Carolinian, I was a little alarmed to, he, see, to hear how easily he slipped into an Appalachian accent there. That was unexpected. Yeah. I guess if you have an actor who can stage fight with a broadsword, then damn it, use it. I love it because what it does in a way, and I think it's a particularly nice moment for people who are maybe coming in with the Christmas special, new viewers coming in. And I think they were expecting a lot of new viewers in this particular Christmas special. David Tennant was a name. The series had been a hit. There was momentum. And there's not a lot else on television at that moment, you know, so you have a viewership. You don't need to know the ins and out of the doctor's history. He comes out from a sleep with a broadsword, and he's going to be victorious. He's he's like Arthur, risen again. You stand as this planet's champion? I don't know who I am, but you just summed me up. 
you you are on his side from that moment. And it's nice that it's a broadsword and not a gun. I mean, honestly, it really is. Uh, how Christmassy does this episode feel to y'all? And, and Christmassy is a kind of a weird term, but every one of these episodes over the years, to one extent or another, they've had to... If the episode didn't happen during Christmas, it happened in a town called Christmas or something like that, it gets kind of repetitive, I guess. But how seasonal does this episode feel compared to the ones we get later on? I just feel like Christmas is less shoehorned in somehow that it takes place at Christmas, but it's just sort of matter of fact. And they use it to their advantage uh, with the pilot fish, with the Santa's Mm -hmm. masks, and with the whirling evil Christmas trees (laughs) in in both of them. And that I feel like they made it fun Christmassy around the edges and not like, this is Christmas, we have to do a Christmas thing. Right. If that makes sense. I honestly didn't notice the green until I started talking with people who were fans and 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 heard that as a criticism of it i it just completely went over my head partly because i guess i'm not looking for 100% naturalism and when even when they have snow on television it tends to look fake so i in in some ways i kind of appreciate it not being fake looking snow mm-hmm. but uh, i kind of like that the christmas is on the edges that it's not the centerpiece visually it's it's great i mean those monsters when they you get the close-up and you see that their faces are like kind of bolted they're gorgeous like those are really really great costumes and that moment when the gun (laughs) when you you have firing it's it's really good and you don't you don't need it to be that but and I, I like in contrast to the more recent Christmas specials where Santa is actually present. Like that just seems a bit on the nose to me on some level, which is silly because it's a Christmas special. So why shouldn't there be? But I, I like the very secularity of these. I like that there's not an attempt to retell a Christmas carol or or some other story that that there's it's it's a story that is appropriate for this show as without it actually having to be seasonal. If it wasn't the Christmas special, these would be a great episode of Doctor Who shown in November. What did you all think about David Tennant in his first uh, full-length episode? I loved him. But one of the things that I love about David Tennant is his ability to change from light and warm to scary and to show the alienness in his face and to make people back off with his threat and the force of his presence. And he does that with the Sycorax, the pilot fish outside the window, like back away at the force of his presence. And at the very end where um, he's like, you know, no second chances. Like that to me was just great. Like just to have that, that turn of warmth and flipping an orange into no second chances. It worked for me. I don't, I, you know, the rhythms of some of the comic elements aren't quite there yet, I think. But that in central or intrinsic element of the Doctor from watching Eccleston like that, I felt like that was necessary and I was happy to see it. Rachel, what did you think of Tennant's uh, first outing? Did he, did he get the character? I, I think so. And in rewatching it, 
I hadn't really thought about the way he looked when he was in Eccleston's costume at the very beginning. And it's hilarious now yeah. looking at it because it just doesn't fit right and it's awkward. That jacket. But, but that, yeah, that <laughs> jacket is just like eight sizes too big for him. But it it kind of helped the moment, yeah. I think. And um, yeah, I think Kathleen was kind of right on there with kind of the progression of the character over the course of the episode and that no second chances moment just showed how he can flip on a, on a dime there. And uh, I just thought his performance was great, especially when he was interacting, I think with Jackie and, and Mickey too. And that Mm -hmm. he, I think he could tell that he had to win them over to win Rose over. And I think David Tennant really played that. Mm-hmm. element well yeah 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 there, and- there's a lot of chemistry with the quote-unquote secondary characters um that makes the entire story very to me very three-dimensional because yeah. he's he's playing what it's like to be the new guy bring brought home to the family and to have to to play the role, but then, and, and, you know, to have to make nice with the family and have them like you. But at the same time as there's that warmth and the, that sweetness, he is also not so self-deprecating that he doesn't know who he is. And right. him knowing who he is, is really p- important for us as an audience to buy who he is. Yeah. And, and, oh my goodness, uh, Harriet Jones, don't you think she looks tired moment? Oh, oh, that that sealed it for me. Yeah, that yeah. that that as well. It's a very powerful moment. And yet that's the one moment of this episode that looking at it with 2017 eyes and remembering the last uh, election where one of the candidates was belittled by another candidate for being, quote, low energy and stuff like that. That actually made me feel a little uncomfortable looking at it today. I'm sure I didn't pick up on uh, back in 2005. I didn't watch this in 2005. I watched it a little bit later, I think a couple years later. But I I loved the wag the dog element (laughs) that kind of came in there and the way that the, the doctor right there is created as such a powerful political actor that I, I don't know. I just, I, that moment is one of my favorite, actually, Rachel, you, it's great that you brought it in because it's, it's probably one of my favorite and most defining moments of the doctor as a character, as somebody who started watching in the new series of, of who I think the doctor is, that he always has that power, whether he chooses to use it or not. He has occasionally chosen to use it, and he does carry that authority and that danger in him. Deleted lines from scripts say that this is the moment where he changed history a bit and gave Harold Saxon an opening to uh, become prime minister and all that that entailed. Yeah. But we'll get to, we'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to that another time. So fast forward a year, Billy Piper leaves the series. And the show We're all crying our eyes out. Yep, yep. And the show ended perfectly with all of this pathos and uh, everybody watching is crying and unhappy. And all of a sudden, Catherine Tate shows up in a wedding dress on the TARDIS. And everybody goes, buh, and waits a few months. And then we get this Christmas special that was clearly shot in the hottest part of July. 
uh, that some some of those scenes with the uh, tenant and Tate on a rooftop, they are clearly sweating. This is not. Yeah. <laughs> this is not. Mm-hmm. This is even worse. It's got a different feel to it. It's got a much more emo doctor this time around, and this is sort of the emo doctor that we're going to have for the duration of David Tennant's uh, tenure on the show. Yeah, I mean, obviously he had just suffered a really powerful loss there and just saying goodbye. So I don't think I don't think he was prepared for Catherine Tate to be <laughs> in the TARDIS. With yeah, him. I mean, tears are rolling down but, his face. He's yes. regaining his composure and then BAM! And Catherine Tate, obviously uh, a bigger name in the UK, especially right around around then uh, than here in the US. There was concern out there. Oh no! What's her, what's her character's name? Lauren, uh, the schoolgirl, and Nan, and all this other stuff. Yeah. What what is she going to bring to Doctor Who? This was going to be just a one-off thing. They didn't really seriously think about bringing her back as a regular companion. If Donna Noble had been a one-off character, what would we have thought of the Runaway Bride? Based on my observation of fandom on the topic, there there was mixed feelings about her and some people really liked her and and some people just hated her and you know I thought that she was delightful and I loved every minute of her on the show Um, I think like there were definitely this is slightly weaker than Christmas Invasion but not tremendously so and and I think the weaker elements is maybe the Rachnos yes elements and how they executed on that um, and some some of that plot device. But I just thought that Donna was so pure. And and I think that giving her the last name Noble made a lot of sense mm. because that's that's who she is. She's just a girl doing her best in the world and trying to keep a stiff upper lip and she just wants to be happy and you can't fault her for that. And even if she's trying to shoehorn happiness into her life, I I just think that's so relatable on so many levels that I just, I, I love Donna. Looking for that happiness when she is being constantly dragged and she she is treated horribly throughout this episode. Yes. By everybody. By everybody. Including the doctor. Including the doctor sometimes. Yeah. Who says some pretty nasty things to her. In the, the the beginning, that are that are they're really unfortunate, but she also, in addition to that, wanting happiness that's relatable, her fear of the doctor at the end, and her sort of wanting to say, how do you how do you live your life like that? I can't I can't live that way. You're scary. You you have the potential to you know destroy the universe, and it scares me. And I think. It's possible, you know, like, I don't want to go with you. That's not what I want. And, yeah, she changes her mind and she comes back and that's delightful. But there is something relatable to not just the the delight of the doctor, but but that darker side of the doctor that, that we were talking about before as well. I mean, I know we all kind of want to get on the TARDIS and be a companion, but if if you saw this stuff actually happening in front of you, would you be a little unnerved? It's one of the best Oh my God, the TARDIS is bigger in the inside than the outside moments when she steps out for the first time. And 
looks back in and sees the, you know, the forced perspective shot of the doctor so far away, she's genuinely scared. It's not strange to be scared by something so beyond our comprehension and so weird. Like, it's not that strange for people to be fascinated by it, like like Clara, you know, to, to want more of it. But there's also, it's also not unrelatable or strange to be like, okay, that doesn't work with physics. But also, like, it's the most perfect opening scene in the world. Yeah, and having somebody with Catherine Tate's comedic skills playing up against David Tennant was just a delight. I mean, especially yes. in those scenes uh, where they're trying to get back to the church or the reception area. And what do you mean you don't have money? I'm wearing a wedding dress. I don't have pockets, you know, pockets, pockets. pockets. <laughs> and it's just and when, you know, she finally is just like, I'm giving up. I'm getting my own damn taxi and I'm getting there on my own. You know, it really shows kind of who she is. and is able to distract him from his pain at that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because he's got a problem to solve. Well, and also she's not assuming that he's the good guy, which is always a little bit weird that like this mysterious stranger shows up and you're like, oh, sure. Yeah, you're the hero you say you are. She's like, I'm, you know, you might be, but I think I'll take care of myself and get myself in this cab. And, you know, you do you, hon. I do love how she sort of grinds him down He's initially trying to figure out how she got into TARDIS, and about 15 minutes into it, he is just desperate to get her to the wedding, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he's just he's just thrown everything else out there. He's tr- they're trying to hail cabs and and he, he just he just gives himself over fully to that. It's such great chemistry between Tennant and Tate right off the bat. And I have to believe that you know, they had so much fun doing this that it made coming back for uh, the fourth series so appealing to Tate. Yeah, and as the episode progressed, you know, later on when the reveal happens that Donna's been fed these um, Huon particles um, and... You know, her fiance really didn't love her and it was a mess and she's kind of the last one to know the the comfort and care that he gives her and isn't condescending to her about it. I just thought that kind of arc over the course of, of the episode on that front was so well played. Right. I really agree. And there's an element of that in the other direction on the rooftop where Tate is giving him a hard time about how he's crazy skinny and no, I don't want any part. She's making fun of him. But then you have this moment where she's letting him grieve a little bit. I'm not sure that's the exact best way to put it, but there's this great emotional moment on the rooftop. And I think people didn't know if Catherine Tate could do that really. And she, she does it beautifully there. And then in the scene, Rachel, that you're talking about, I mean, the range that she has in this this whole episode. I mean, it's a beautiful showcase for what she can do beyond what she was famous for. This episode features the snottiest villain in Doctor Who history. Her literatively or figuratively? Her, figuratively. <laughs> I was going to say, because the Rachnos is kind of snot. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But the Rachnos is just nasty. She's not just mustache twirling villain. She is, she is just reveling in being mean. You know, the the goofy I say I do 
I don't, you know. Um, I don't think we've ever had a character, a, a, a bad guy character in Doctor Who that was so mean just for meanness's sake. It's, it's over the, it, maybe the master in a few, in, in a few places, certainly the master yeah. dragging Bill, um, at the end of series 10, but she's just, she's just mean. Well, Lance is not exactly a delight either. He's a, no, he's a no. pretty horrible excuse for humanity. Um, as well, uh, the 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 Rachnos is, I mean, Rachel, you touched on this before. Probably the least successful piece of what is otherwise a a pretty amazing episode, um, because that over the top evil it, it doesn't work as well when you're not actually a cartoon Disney villain under the sea. Yeah, although I will say that I love Sarah Parrish. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. And the, and the fact that they've worked together on like four different things amuses me greatly. And I love mm-hmm. all of them, by the way. Yeah. But Oh, she 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 acts she she does a yeah. great job she's acting all under all of those prosthetics and she's and she's she's in the live giant spider suit. You know, there's no there's not a whole lot of CGI involved. She's th- th- that was one hell of an undertaking. But one of the most broadly written villains we've had. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes the I have a zip in my forehead and fart look subtle. Yeah. Uh, what are some other strengths uh, to the Runaway Bride? I think the whole Donna, like of Donna's family mm-hmm. is a strength, even though they're kind of mean to her at the time. I, I think that it just created this whole world that you kind of understood where Donna came from and why she is the way she is around these family and friends. And for a one-off character to really have developed that much was really important and, and rather well done. Mm-hmm. It is it is one of the brilliant things about having a wedding as the, the entry point into a character's life because you do get to see where they're from, what what they're hoping for. Um, who their friends are, who their enemies are. It, it, you know, it is, it, is a, it is a whole, it's one of the only excuses to have like everybody in the, in the cast of characters that's their life on stage at once. Um, and, and just the moment where she's like, oh, I had such a pretty party planned and everybody's going to be so sad. And then you flick to the sign of everybody at the party having a brilliant time and they're dancing and she shows up. And it's just, like that just says something really deep about how her life works and and how she fits within it um and and why Lance would be in some ways appealing to her and and his not chasing of her but his um why this worked for her why this worked on her i think this episode opens the door for the rest of the 10th doctor's era with the conversation at the end where donna says she thinks that the doctor needs someone to stop him because yeah uh him taking out the rachnas family he does look grim and dark and dangerous and other in that he's fighting against that all the way up through uh through journey's end and all the way you know there's a there's almost a through line i think between you need someone to stop you all the way up to the waters of mars and I still, even with all of that, I still think of David Tennant as my happy-go-lucky and gobby fun doctor. Partly because 
I started later, I think. And so I watched the ninth doctor basically all in one chunk and then went into tenant that the, maybe the contrast wasn't as, as dramatic because I, I didn't live with the ninth doctor and then have the, the shift. My, my shift into tenant was much, much faster. I was into tenant very quickly because I don't generally think of him as being that lighthearted. I think of Matt Smith as being much more antic and emo. And so when you wrote emo doctor, I had to actually be like, wait, really? Um, partly because his element of avenging God that he has in, in these dark moments, it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit for me with that, that notion of someone who's, who's really emo. Um, I mean, that said, you know, his tears at the end of the previous episode, his, his, his caring and his loss for, for Rose and for other humans is definitely there. So it's not that I don't think he has emotions. It's just that the contrast with the vengeful God part is, is very strong for me. Rachel, any final thoughts on The Runaway Bride? I, I think we've pretty much covered it. But yeah, I just I found it to be pretty delightful across the board and that it really does provide a good bridge between Rose and Martha mm -hmm. that I think we're ready for Martha because we've had this episode and the doctor may not be ready for her yet as we go through the first few episodes and, right. and he's stringing her along, but we're ready for her. We're ready for her. It's, it's a good idea to have a break, um, yes. a room to breathe so that Martha is given the chance to, stand on her own feet and in the coming soon um trailer at the end of the runaway bride that's the, that's one of the first lines that you get is the doctor telling martha you're not replacing rose and martha responding i didn't say i was or something like that the runaway bride did the job it facilitated it i get and i guess that's my last question for the both of you christmas invasion the job is introduce the uh, introduce a new doctor runaway bride i guess its job is is to bridge the gap or make martha possible i can't think of any other job that it has other than to be a fun christmas story it's a palate cleanser it's it's a needed bit of space as you said of of humor of levity it's a a change of gears from the the sadness at the end of the previous episode to uh, open up and allow other emotions to be possible for the doctor, to allow other emotions, as you said, to be possible for the audience. Um, I, I think it's definitely the right thing to have done before bringing in Martha. It's clear from a lot of people's reaction that even so it was still not enough for enough for a lot of people to, to be open to Martha. Still, still people weren't quite ready in some ways, I think for her, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a delight between after a lot of emotion to have something where the stakes are medium. Not yeah, they're medium. Yeah, I was gonna say that it's not that the stakes are non-existent, but yeah, that's exactly right. The stakes are medium. The stakes are 
are bearable. The universe is not going to end. The stakes are, are serious enough for it to matter, but not so much that you're, you're put, you, the audience member, are not put through an emotional ringer. Well, any episode that has a TARDIS car chase in it Seriously. has to be a good one. There were, fa- there were fans who were disgruntled about that, and I turned my back on them. If I were to even quibble the littlest bit, I'd be like, okay, you didn't need the final shot with the two kids staring, but, yeah, know, that that's like the tiniest, littlest quibble of all time, and... At the same time, it's like it's fun, but that yeah, it was very Cannonball Run to me. And oh, I enjoy totally! That. <laughs> that's a great one. Yeah, exactly. That that that's actually a really really good. Uh, yeah, the fun is going to continue next time as we dig into a laugh riot of an episode, a Christmas special called Voyage of the Damned. That's going to be a hoot. I'm telling you. But it's time to wrap this one up. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You can find This Week in Time Travel at thisweekintimetravel.com and on Twitter at drwhothisweek. I'm on Twitter at numeral two minute time lord. Rachel's R. Miriam. Kathleen is K. Showalter, K S C H O W A L T E R. And our prodigal Alyssa Frankie is at Whovian Feminism on Twitter and Tumblr. This Week in Time Travel is on Facebook as well. You can support This Week in Time Travel by becoming a member of the Incomparable Network. Just go to theincomparable.com slash members. Rachel, Kathleen, thanks again. We will talk to you all later on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.